0: Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Before we read Daniel chapter 1, I heard a cool story. Um, I heard a cool story by Dr. Ravi Zacharias. Um, He came to the convocation hall at the Toronto University some years ago, and we were there. And it was so amazing to listen to this guy. But he told a story of a little boy who wanted a bicycle. Did anybody ever hear that story? Yeah, he wanted a bicycle. He wanted a red and blue bicycle. He was five years old. So he tried to hint. He tried to leave pictures for his mom and dad. At the age of five, he tried to manipulate. Like, if I only had a bike, I could drive to the park. He tried everything, but nothing worked. And, and as it progressed, all of his friends eventually had bicycles except him. So he thought, what else can I do? And one day he's watching TV and there's a TV evangelist on. So he thought, wow, I'm going to pray. He had no idea of who God was. So he started flipping through the channels on the TV, all the evangelist channels. So he went into his bedroom the first night and this is how he prayed. This is a five-year-old boy, okay? Robbie Zacharias tells it much better than me because he's got that beautiful Indian accent. He said, Dear Heavenly Father, If it is thy will, and (laughs) if it is at all possible, if I have walked in thy ways, may I have a bicycle. Oh, red and blue, by the way, thanks. Amen. The next morning he woke up, no bike. So he goes back to the TV, flips through the channels, finds another TV evangelist. That evening he's praying like this. Dear Lord Jesus... I declare now in the name of Jesus that I have a blue and red bike, an expensive bike. I take it now by faith. I receive it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Anyway, the next morning he woke up, no bicycle. So his mom is there with him at the house and they have a little statue of Mary on their mantelpiece. So you're watching him, he takes the statue of Mary and he runs out the house and he disappears into the back forest area behind the house. And he comes back later on and she, uh, she checks on him in his room and there he is on his knees. Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again, you better give me a bike. It's, it's, it's still funny. I mean, it's an amazing story. But for me, I want to bring it into the premise of this kid had no idea of what a Christian man or woman or a follower of Jesus is like. In fact, he had no idea of what Jesus was like and of what God is like. And I want to ask the question this morning in our lives, do the world know by looking at us what our God is like? And this is very much still in the vein of what it is to be walking in the Spirit, you know, living in the Spirit of Christ. It is wonderful to hear your voices on a Sunday morning. It's really a beautiful thing. It's amazing for us to come together like this in, in a cool space and because we like each other. I can genuinely say there's no one here that I don't like. And, uh, and love. I like Imanzi more than most, but uh, I like you guys. <laughs> and the space that we have and what the Lord is doing and the, what the journey that God has us on and how He's unfolding and how four people came boldly to the front last week professing their need for Jesus and wanting to be filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit. Guys, God is in our midst, and I keep saying this, and it's a wonderful thing, but we live a life every day in very real and raw and rugged circumstances sometimes. We have real relational crises in which we cannot function any longer on a tit-for-tat, eye-for-an-eye premise. We have to be, as followers of Jesus, those that the world look at and see the outworking of us being from a different world. Was that slow enough? Holiness means a different place. It's a different world. If we are holy, like Jesus is holy, it means we get it that He's from another world. We need to know what that world is. The only way that that is ever revealed to us is not by study and work, and those things are all great. But those things are revealed to us by the Spirit of Christ, which He places liberally and freely inside of us. Each one of us, every one of us. And so when we cry, Holy Spirit, come upon us, I would rather want to say, Holy Spirit, come out from within us. And that's why when we alone, sometimes we experience the presence of God wonderfully. But I have always experienced the presence of God much more powerfully in a corporate setting. Can you imagine, can you imagine, you know, a hundred of us fully focused on Jesus, completely surrendered to the Holy Spirit, and totally undistracted by life and how we release the Spirit of Christ from within us. And every one of us has this amazing gift. It's so totally different to the one next to us. Can you imagine the picture we'll paint? That's what the world wants to see. It happens every day. (sighs) Yes, Daniel. So what does a true follower of Jesus Christ look like? There was a guy, I want to tell you the story. His name is Andres Stamos. He was a a Hungarian guy. He's, He's dead now. He was in prison in Russia for 55 years. He was in the news in Europe. Yeah. He was, and then they wanted to execute him because he was imprisoned at the age of 20 uh, as a, crimin- uh, a, 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 a prison of war. And he was in jail for 55 years. And so all he was doing is he was, he was, he was, he was mumbling to himself. Uh, 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 most of the 55 years he spent in solitary confinement. Think of that. It's unthinkable of a human being living like that. And so the Russians said that they were going to actually execute him because of war crimes. And so, an Hungarian, he was Hungarian, an Hungarian psychologist asked if he could have seven sessions with him, and he walked through this guy, and he figured out that this guy was speaking an ancient Hungarian dialect. Being out of touch with humanity for 55 years, and most of it in solitary confinement, this psychiatrist committed himself, psychologist psychiatrist, committed himself to the restoration of this old man. Take a guess. What was the first thing he wanted when he came out of jail after 55 years? He was released to the psychiatrist. And he died as a free man, but he was in jail for 55. What was the first thing he wanted when he came out of jail? A mirror. A mirror. A mirror. He wanted to see, because for 55 years he'd never seen what he looked like. He wanted to see what he had become. When he got the mirror, he looked at it for about a second, uh, like it says 15 seconds. He looked in the mirror and he started weeping uncontrollably for hours and hours and hours. The psychologist, no one could stop him. He wept and wept and wept at the reflection of what he saw he had become. Does anybody here not have a mirror in their bathroom? We look in the mirror every day. If you saw what I looked like this morning when I woke up, it's ugly. You wouldn't come to church. I looked a bit like Paul. Jokes. <laughs> Paul looks good. I wish I had a beard like that. But we look in the mirror so that we look at ourselves to see, wow, I need to make, I need to make the changements. I need to make the changes and the adjustments so that I actually can be presentable to the to the world. Right? Daniel chapter 1. Is there a mirror to the soul? Is there a picture in the Bible that you and I are meant to look like, according to our Lord and Savior, Jesus? Especially if we are called to be His ambassadors. Ambassadors are those who represent, right? If we are called to represent Christ, is there a mirror of the soul? Is there a picture of what we need to look like? To me, that picture is revealed by walking in the Spirit. Daniel 1. Okay. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and he came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into the hand, into his hand, is Siri truly trying to correct me there? What's the Lord, he, so the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of Of his officials to bring some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family, say royal family please, royal royal family, and of the nobles, four youths, in whom was no defect, who were good looking, intelligent, in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court and he ordered him to teach them the literature the language of the Chaldeans the king appointed for them a daily ration from from the king's choice food and from the wine which the king drank and he appointed that they should be educated for three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service now among them were the sons of Judah, they were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Beltesh- Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official did tell Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? And the king would then have my head because of you. Daniel said to the guard, I'm trying to read slowly guys, sorry whom the chief officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servant in accordance with what you see then. So he agreed to this and he tested them for 10 days at the end of the 10 days they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food so the god took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead Daniel who loves the book of Daniel it's one of my favorite books i mean it's incredible it's an incredible book and just in this chapter that I've just read, the, the metaphors are ridiculous in comparison to the world that we live in now, the people of God versus a Babylonian system. But Daniel here made a stand. And so I want to just mention three points of what Daniel did here, that in my opinion qualified him, just like Moses, Joseph, Jacob, Jesus, and many others to bring freedom to the people of God, to the nations as a a result of that that truth. Daniel was a man who walked in the Spirit. And the first thing that Daniel did, when the king of Babylon wanted to bring the the children of God, the young men of God, the ones that were intelligent, good-looking, and all those things, into the Babylonian system, he wanted to literally, basically through literature, and, uh, and um, philosophy changed the way that they think from a Hebraic culture into a, a Babylonian system. And I just want to apologize now. I hate to be that guy. But I feel that we live in an era where the Babylonian system is very relevant to the way that we walk as followers of Jesus. And, uh, and I wa- want to say this as well. I want to say that social media and the internet is brainwashing us and the next generation and the next generation. And I want to warn you. I want to warn you. It is creating within us an ideology and even a theology, a view of God that is geared towards a Babylonian system and not towards family, culture, relationships and real life. I think I mentioned it last week that the greatest pressure in the world today on people is the pressure to appear successful. And so much of the natural process of life is dismissed and all you get is the final picture of you diving off a 150 feet cliff. No one has seen the process of life, the beautiful ambiances, the beautiful food we eat, the great things that we do. And we have lives that are projected that aren't real. That don't have to deal with the nitty gritty of walking in the spirit. And therefore don't lean very dependently on the wisdom that the spirit of Christ gives us. The first thing that Daniel did, he drew the line of resistance by training his appetite. The first thing that happened to Israel when they came out of slavery is they came out of slavery. Yet, their taste buds longed for slavery. They longed back for the garlic and the pots and the appetites and the things that the world offered them. And they preferred, this is not in scripture, but I believe this is based on their behavior, they preferred slavery and what it gave them over the the ability to taste something different for the first time. Okay? So, how many of you have ever eaten haggis? Yeah, haggis. Put up your hand, hi, haggis. Dave, what does it taste like? Uh, what? It Tastes like turkey dressing. Haggis, haggis. We're talking about blood sausage, haggis. What does it taste like, right? Uh, good. Tastes good. Mary. It tastes like soda with onions anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I ate haggis. Cats did, did you eat haggis? No. I ate haggis. How many of you have ever eaten uh, eyes, eyeballs? eyeballs, eyeballs of any kind? Yeah. Wow. Wow. We have a cannibal tribe here. Yeah. How many of you have I- ever eaten uh, halva? Who doesn't know what halva is? Oh my gosh. That's ninety percent. Halva. Halva is a, is, a, is a Middle Eastern delicacy made with sesame and something else. It is absolutely divine. You can go to the market downtown, to, uh, St. Lawrence Market, and in the back there's a couple of Greek brothers who sell cheese and halva. Buy yourself a little sliver of halva. It is absolutely delicious. Absolutely delicious. How many of you have ever eaten matabella, sorghum porridge? Okay. What does sorghum, what does Matabella taste like, Lee? <laughs> it's, it's, it's like cream of wheat, but it's, yes. it's, like, it's like a, sort of a... a think it's yes, a, what? Sandy. sandy. Yeah. It's like cream of wheat, but it tastes like malt, because the flour is sorghum. It is delicious. <laughs> Leeva goes, there. <"Bleh." laughs> yeah. Can I just ask, humbly, if you would be so brave, any vegetarians here among us? Who do not eat meat? Okay, nobody. Wow. Who does not like the taste of meat? I've got to point to this little thing, okay? Okay, there's two people. Kathy and you know, three, four. Okay, there's like seven people who don't like the taste of meat. The point that I'm trying to make is that taste buds is a very real thing. It's a very real thing. I remember we, we had a little cottage in Ponta da Ora in Mozambique. And I remember as a child watching the, 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 the Portuguese Mozambicans eat baby squid, okay? Perfect, little baby calamari Like, they would eat them like popcorn. And I was like, that's disgusting. Today, I can't get enough of that. And, And so, there are definitely taste buds that grow and develop. Do you understand where I'm going with this? Some people like certain things. Other people like other things. If you have a trained taste buds for things that are sweet and starchy, you're going to be unhealthy. And you have to retrain your taste buds to like salad and spinach and stuff and uh, kale. Oh, oh! Can't even say the word. <laughs> and 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 the tr- and the truth of it is this: this is this is the fact, and I'm sure that all of you have actually experienced this. When we go on a on a on a sugar fast, or when we train ourselves to eat like that kale salad with the with the dressing, I squeeze every little bit of the dressing out because otherwise it just tastes like nothing. It takes two weeks, three weeks, maybe, I don't know. There's no f- exact thing, but people say it takes 21 days or whatever to break a habit or whatever the case is. But then you start to actually enjoy it a little bit. I do. Or I trick myself into it. Or I trick myself to believe into it. And, 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 but then, oh my goodness, if the opportunity avails itself and there's a big steak on the table, or whatever the case is, then we, then we indulge. And the bottom line for this is that, that Daniel literally just drew a line as far as his appetite was concerned. I'm not talking physical food here. I'm talking kingdom reality. I'm talking not allowing yourself to be absolutely brainwashed by a Babylonian system, a culture that is rooted in narcissism and pleasure and pleasing yourself to the nth degree. And if you literally, I promise you, if you do it, maybe for a week or so, you'll start to see it. It'll, it'll exponentially, it'll become huge, your awareness of what goes on around you. I'm not talking about us becoming freaks. But Daniel, the first thing he did, he drew the line of resistance by training his appetite. Remember what Daniel said when Saul was chasing him? David, do you remember he, Saul was chasing him? He was hiding in a cave somewhere and he longed for the water of the well of Bethlehem. Two of his soldiers, two or three, can't remember exactly, broke through the enemy ranks. The soldiers of Saul surrounded them. They broke through. They went to the well without David knowing. They drew water from the well. They brought it back, breaking through from the back. I guess that's easy. You just wallop the guy from the back and you run. And they got to David. And David longed. He had an appetite. He could actually taste the water. taste it different from the well of Bethlehem. And he poured it out because he thought, this is so not I'm not worthy of this. And he poured it out. He denied his appetite. Moses, do you remember Moses who refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God because he curbed his appetite for that form of identity to brainwash him and to establish himself in his, in his psyche, in his philosophical worldview, as it may. My question is, whose are we? And does the world know that? Can the world see that? Or do we just look exactly like the world, but we call ourselves these Christians? Moses, yeah, and he dwells for 40 years in the desert as a result of that decision, right? Uh, So in, in this walk, the Spirit will always have to draw a line somewhere in our lives. The Holy Spirit will always have to draw a line somewhere if we live in this world. The line of resistance to our appetite and it it will never not be there how many of you to this day are walking in areas of discipline that you know you can't give yourself to you have to be disciplined in those areas there's a lot of us for sure it'll be different for everybody but there always will be a line of resistance in some area of our life absolutely otherwise the world will just chew us up spit us out and it's useless I had a friend in the British Virgin Island his name was um, Buck, Buck Davy, Buckley Davy, and I don't know if it was Buck himself or his mom. I remember the story though. Um, worked as a nurse. I think it was his mom, and she was a nurse, and she 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 was working with in in uh, in uh, in um, Zimbabwe in a hospital for people with disease, and she pricked herself with a needle that she had just used on a on a um, on a patient, and she got the disease. And she actually got very sick as a result of, of, this, of pricking herself with this needle. And, um, and that's all it took, the smallest prick. Do you think for our souls we can live in the world completely unexposed to its reality? Do you think the enemy can, with one little prick of, 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 of unforgiveness or, or whatever that we deal with relationally, can enter our soul, enter our spirit, man, and completely compromise us. I think he can. I absolutely think he can. And so the smallest brick of the demonic realm will will contaminate us for sure. I hope this doesn't sound legalistic, does it? Hey, baby, what do you think? Okay, you're going to kill me for asking you, All right? So if we are ever going to change this world, this city, this place, this culture, this generation, and the next, it'll start. It's where we draw the line because we're living by the spirit of a different world, without a doubt. And that world by which we live, where Jesus is king, it's the kingdom, is the ultimate goal of our existence here is to reveal that kingdom, to make it plain. Where does it happen? In your life, in my life, through our lives. And I love that scripture says the world will know us by our love for one another. It's a beautiful thing. So if we are walking as followers of Christ in the way of the Spirit, it's something to be stewarded, because with stewardship comes increase. Faithful with little, ruler over much. And so as we steward this walking in the Spirit, and we draw lines, we draw lines. I'm not talking about a legalistic, outer-imposed system, not that at all, but the transforming work of the Spirit of Christ that starts from within us and works its way out of us it starts I'm telling you now with this love relationship with Jesus but there will always be a line that the spirit draws for you and for me so Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon he wanted wise men to interpret this dream and this is where I'm going to just go back to the story but not read it so he called all the wise men Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon called to them and he said you guys I want you to interpret this dream for me and they said sure shoot and he said no I want you to tell me what I dreamt and I want you to interpret the dream. And they're like, yeah, that's not happening. So as they do in popular Babylonian fashion, they hold them all together into one place, they chopped all their heads off. And so Daniel went away, realizing that he could not rely on his own ability, his good looks, his great sense of philosophical argument or anything like that. He needed the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Point number two. Point number one, he drew a line. Point number two, he needed the wisdom of God. And for those of you who don't know the dream, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a big statue, or a statue, right? The head was gold, bronze, silver, clay, steel, as it went down, and Nebuchadnezzar was the head. He was the boss. And from the mountain on the side, a bigger rock came loose. And it hurtled down the mountain, smashed into the statue, and destroyed it. Actually, the Bible says it hit it and it destroyed it into dust. And so Daniel stood before the king of Babylon. And I believe that that is a big deal for us as believers. It's a big deal. He stood before the king of Babylon, and he said, I've got good news and bad news. Good news is God told me your dream. And he told them the dream. And I can't imagine what Nebuchadnezzar must have thought. Wow! This is incredible. Now for the bad news. You are the statue that's going to be smashed to pieces. It's amazing. That wisdom is something that only God can give us. How many... how many of you have ever been in a scenario like that where you're completely in over your head and you know you need the wisdom of God right now? I've told you before, I'll tell you quickly. Kiatel and I were captured in Mozambique by Renama, and by Frelimo and we were Renama, uh, by one of Frelimo or Renama. Jeez, where's my head? I need to know the difference. Anyway, they took us to the rebel leader, and there was a civil war in Mozambique at the time, and they confound us, they locked us up for two days in the secret base camp, of the leader of Frelimo, Alfonso Chicanza was his name. He's now the deputy president of Mozambique. And he arrived after two days. And in those two days, Key and I sat talking about God. And we just prayed. We prayed for Mozambique. We prayed for the people because we had seen the most horrific things in war. It was terrible. But I became so aware of the fact that we need the wisdom of God for this meeting we're going to have with this guy. because they were killing people like flies. And life really meant very little at that stage. People get intoxicated with war. It's a very demonic reality. And Alfonso Tocanza walked into the room where we were sitting at a dining room table, and we stood up, both of us, and we were stinky and dirty, because we had been in Mozambique for a long time. We were filthy. We were there in the, in the cell, and we were in this, in this place where they kept us, and he walked into the room in full military attire. And I said, Lord, I don't know what to say to this guy. Maybe if I greet him, he's going to think I'm patronizing him. Please, will your Holy Spirit be upon us? And thank God, Keir stepped forward and put his hand out to shake his hand. And he did, he shook our hands. And um, we told him why we were there. They, they caught us because they thought we were spies. But. I, we just held our Bibles up and said gospel. I didn't know Portuguese at all. I still don't. But I needed. What the heck? I needed some Portuguese people with me. But you weren't born yet. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, uh, so the, the, the meeting turned into an incredible time of ministering for this rebel leader, praying with him, for, for, for him breaking down and asking what we can do and I said unless you turn to Jesus you have no hope of leading your people into the future unless you look at scripture unless you look at what God thinks of you you have no hope to win the hearts of the Mozambican people and he sat looking at us with every word with intent intent. and a couple of years later we were in in Zambia do you mind me telling you these stories I'm just trying to tell you about these wisdom encounters there's lots of times where I have personally felt and I'm sure you too of, of times where we were just out of our depth. We were in, Mos- in uh, Zambia at a place called Intendera. It was like a supernatural way that we even got to this place, completely random. Thousands of people in, in, in what seemed to be a meeting of, of, of waiting for revival. They'd been crying out for revival for seven years. So we arrived, Kia and I, again, and another friend of mine, and they said, We've been waiting. We've been crying out for God to bring revival to our country and so on and so on. Again, I was completely overwhelmed. After the meeting, which was mind blowing, top three meetings in my entire life of the move of God just through people, it was unbelievable. There was a man who came on a bicycle to us and said, The president of Zambia will see you tomorrow at 3 o'clock. I thought, The president of Zambia won't send a bicycle. But the guy that we were with, Grant, said, No, he is one of the couriers of the president. Three o'clock, the president's car picked us up and drove us into the compound of the president of Zambia. And I was petrified. Again, we ironed our clothes the best we could and stood there. There was a French uh, group there, and they took them out and they brought us in, and we met the president of Zambia. And he stood up, shook our hands, and he said, what is God saying about Zambia? And I was like, wow, I can't make stuff up now. And I said... (laughs) I said to him, I said to him, God loves every person in the country of Zambia. And uh, Kia and I prayed for him again. Again, he was filled with the presence of, of the Holy Spirit in tears, and we prayed for Zambia. And after our meeting, he stood up and he said, I want you to know that Zambia is open to you and to the gospel, and anywhere you want to meet, any stadium you ever want is available for you. Us, me, I was a scruffy 20-something-year-old lighty. I knew nothing of life. And then one more time, when Kath and I went to the British Virgin Islands, every door closed in our faces, but we knew God said for us to go. And we tried super hard, but nothing happened. And one day Kath and I were praying at home, and and I I said, babe, what are we going to do? We can't just let this thing go. And we prayed about it, and God told me that night that I needed to go back and see the president. So I I spoke, spoke to the elders and we booked a ticket, and I flew back by myself for a week. I stayed on Janet's couch. You guys met Janet, Janet and her husband. Stayed on the couch there for a week, sat next to the telephone and did not move. The last day at 4 o'clock, I was flying out the next morning, I got a call from the President's office saying, Mr. Marie, the President will see you now, the Chief Minister. I flew down there, got to see him, and he said to me, what are you doing here? South Africa has enough problems of their own why don't you fix those and then try and solve the problems of the world those were his words to me again I thought Lord what am I going to say to that that's such a brilliant question so intelligent and I said to him if you would have us we would want to come here and serve the people of the Virgin Islands because God loves them and he said to me you know I'm sick randomly I said no I didn't know that can I pray for you he said yes you can pray for me so I said, can I pray for you now? He said, yes. I leaned over and I put my hand on his shoulder and I prayed for God to heal him. He was very ill, Ralph T. O'Neill, and he's still alive today. This is 18 years later. Those moments of wisdom. Daniel had a moment like that. Stood before the Lord. The Lord will bring us into those places, for sure, without a doubt, where we cannot rely on our own, own understanding. And lastly, um, um, Yes, the last thing is that Daniel drew a line saying that my confidence is not in me or my ability or my gift set, but my confidence is fully in God. And you know where he learned that? Not when he was lying on his back having a pedicure. No, he learned that when they flung him into a den of lions. Those who want to devour you and destroy you and have appetites to eat people like you. An angel was there with him, and I love the graphic picture of it, locked the mouths of the lions. My children's Bible were lions licking Gideon. (laughs) I thought, that's so amazing. Why did that happen? He put his confidence in God. And another place straight after that, and they were so upset and he built a statue and they wouldn't bow to the statue, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace and there was another person with them in the furnace. I believe it was Jesus himself in the furnace with them. But this, is, this was their statement. <laughs> when everybody bowed at the symbol, at the sign, okay, there was a, maybe a massive trumpet, everybody bowed, thousands of people bowed to the statue. Shadrach Meshach and Abednego stood they did not bow and then the guy came around and said hey guys you have to bow this was the signal they didn't bow and they said if you don't bow this time you're going to the fiery furnace and they said these words our god will deliver us okay they didn't know no know, know that for sure but if he doesn't we still won't bow Is that you and me? Do we have that measure of confidence to say, I'm not going to bow to this. And whatever comes my way as a result of it, God will deliver me. But if He doesn't, I'm still not bowing to that. Because my confidence is in God. Friends, I want to dare say that that is what walking in the Spirit looks like. The lion's den, the fiery furnace... No matter what, God will deliver us and even if He doesn't, it's okay. So Paul writes it to the Romans here. Those who follow Christ in Rome. And his encouragement to the Roman churches, be steadfast, be unwavering in your faith because they lived in a world of utter narcissistic bloodshed. Rome was brutal in the, in the days of the, of the Roman church. Christians were rolled in tar and, and used as tortures. And in in big places, you know, all the horrible things that happened that the Romans did in Rome. I'm sure if you've visited Rome, you've been to to the Colosseum, you've got a glimpse of all those kind of things. Those things actually happened. In the midst of this crumbling Roman world, Christianity emerged. Why? They were steadfast. They were unwavering in their faith. They loved ridiculously. They were known for their generosity. When the city, when the country threw people out, the Christian church took them in. The followers, they were called the way. The people who followed Christ. They were living completely contrary to the, to the falling Roman world. I want to say to you that Christianity today in the world is crumbling. Hear me out. Because of a postmodern mentality. In some parts of the world, there's some references of Christianity. But there's a move of the Spirit of God, undeniably, Jan was just telling me now about Honduras. Stadiums of people getting together. South America, all over. Chan was talking to me about South America as well. Brazil. Thousands and thousands of turning to Jesus in a postmodern world where there's no social reference to a church. Almost none, except these beautiful buildings. Lucky us, we got it. But in the midst of a collapsed Christendom, Christianity, the followers of Christ, rise. That's us. We draw the line for our appetites. We confess our trust in God, whether we live or die. And in final closing, in Revelation, there's the scripture that says, they were overcomers. Because we were designed to be overcomers by God Himself. Every human being on this planet, overcomers. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And the word of the stories, the testimonies, which mean God do it again, of what God has done in our lives. We tell the stories of what God does in our lives, not just on the mission field, but here too. There too and here too. Everywhere we tell the stories. Not loving our lives even unto death, which means we don't use God to preserve our lives. And then Jesus said, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross, which is the symbol of death to self, let's go. This is a tough sermon, right? Hey? Let's bow our knees and pray. Let's pray. Did I say knees? Oh, yeah. Sorry, I meant heads. Let's do knees as well, if you want. (laughs) Lord, oh, Lord, we don't want to just read um, Scripture and... um, in a sense, be entertained by it. We want the Spirit, your Spirit, to lead us in, into all truth. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Oh, I love you, Lord, and I love your word, and I love what you're doing with us, and I love that your love is unfailing, whether we're up or down, happy or sad. You never, ever leave or forsake us, but you're always stirring our hearts. To, to, to respond to this irresistible love. Love that holds no record of wrong. So Lord, as we are here before you as your people, we realize that we live in a beautiful world with beautiful people in a beautiful city and we want to be the fragrance of Christ in this place more than anything. And we are we are that. We love you. We thank you. You've done it all for us. I ask particularly for your joy. It's full of glory to fall upon our lives in our everyday walk. Thank you that you make everything light your yoke is easy your burden is light that you walk with us through the valley out the other side thank you for everyone here Lord and for your hand upon us as you lead us in Jesus name Amen